Give you all a warm welcome to our service tonight. We'll begin by singing Psalm 24 from Sing Psalms, and we'll stand and sing the whole psalm. The world and all in it are God's, all peoples of the earth, for it was founded by the Lord upon the seas beneath. The whole psalm. <coughs> the world and all in it are God, all peoples of the earth, for it was founded by the Bye. 
Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks that the words we have been singing have come true, uh, that Jesus has entered into the gates of glory and been acknowledged as King, uh, seated at your right hand, sharing your throne. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that, as Paul tells us, that Jesus has been highly exalted and given the name that's above every name, so, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's good for us uh, to say that he is Lord, to confess it, and to verbally acknowledge it, even in the psalm we have just sung, to realize that his character, that he was fit to ascend the hill of God because of his qualities of his life, his perfect life, but also because of the wonder of his obedience, because not only did he obey your law perfectly, but he also obeyed your will uh, for him in a particular sense, and that he was asked to do what no one else has ever been asked to do, and that was to pay the penalty for sin. And that was an important aspect of his obedience, and if he hadn't done it, then we wouldn't be here. But we thank you, Lord, that Jesus did it, and that he became obedient even to the death of the cross. And it's good for us to think about the cross and the various things that happened there at Calvary, uh, the different people that were involved and the incidents that occurred, all the features that your word tells us about the cross, that we know it was prophesied in great detail, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, read if we didn't know otherwise, as if they had been composed sitting at the cross, but we know they were uh, prophecies made centuries before Jesus came into the world, and we thank you, Lord, that these predictions are now part of history, that Jesus fulfilled them many ways, literally, but he also fulfilled them uh, both in a visible and in an invisible way. Uh, much of what happened there was visible, but we know there were aspects that were invisible. The only one who could see them was yourself, and 
We know that his resurrection indicated that what you saw, you've been satisfied with, and you showed your acceptance by raising him from the dead. And ever since then, he has been building his church. And we thank you, Lord, that he is building it today in numerous places simultaneously. And we ask you, Lord, that he would be building it in Inverness and that in many ways people will be coming to embrace him, that you would work in their lives to bring that about. So as we go to the cross tonight in our thoughts, we pray, Lord, that we would be affected, not merely in a sense of sympathy, which is always liable to happen when we read about something tragic, but that we would um, be affected in our hearts, uh, our affections would be stimulated, and our resolve would be strengthened uh, by coming to the cross. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us there, and that he would explain to us what happened there, and we just pray, Lord, for your blessing to be on our service. We come, Lord, as people anticipating the start of another week. Uh, we know it starts with today, but in a sense tomorrow is when we go back to our regular activities. And we pray that you would grant that what we think about tonight would help us as we uh, face whatever life has in store for us. We pray it would give us the desire uh, to serve you in our daily work and in our homes and in our interactions with others. And we ask, Lord, that we would be challenged perhaps by the life of the man we'll think about, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Lord, we realize that um, some of us are carrying burdens and we just pray, Lord, that we will be enabled to cast our burdens on you. We remember those who are not well, whether in hospital or at home, or those anticipating uh, going to hospital, uh, that you would uh, bless all that's done and that recovery would be made. Lord, remember other aspects of life that we face, uh, we ask you, Lord, uh, to remember our nation in these dark spiritual times. We just ask for spiritual revival to come, uh, real power from your throne, the power of mercy. We pray that you would uh, do that uh, in a manner that would astonish us, and it's not beyond your power to do that. And we just ask you, Lord, to have mercy on our society and bless it. Remember our governments, we pray you give them wisdom to lead us through these difficult days. And we pray you'd remember the parts of the world where there's great distress, like Ukraine, and other parts where there's wars, and where there's also places where there's natural disasters. 
We pray that you would help those who are trying to bring relief and open doors for that to happen. We pray for your persecuted church, that you would remember uh, all of them. We know that you do that, but in some way that we don't understand, our prayers are also involved as we make intercession. And we ask, Lord, that you would just remember uh, your suffering church. So, Lord, be with us in our service. Remember those who can't be here. We pray your blessing on them and those who are watching via Zoom, that they too would be blessed. So, Lord, remember us and be with us and keep us, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen. We'll sing again this time from Psalm 16 and sing Psalms, verses 7 to 11. I'll praise the Lord my God, whose counsel guides my choice. And even in the night, my heart recalls instruction's voice. Verses 7 to 11. <clears throat> I'll praise the Lord my God His counsel guides my choice And even in the night My heart recalls instruction
Uh, we can read from Luke chapter 23, and we can read verses 26 to 56. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. But if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with them. And when they came to the place that is called a skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, 
and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. And may God bless that reading. We can now sing Psalm 15 from the Scottish Psalter, and I will stand to sing the whole psalm. Within thy tabernacle, Lord, who shall abide with thee? And in thy high and holy hill, who shall a dweller be? We'll stand to sing. Within thy tabernacle, Lord, who shall
Well, we can turn back to the chapter we read there, Luke chapter 23, and I'd like us to think about verses 50 to 53, and we can just reread them. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. I suppose we're familiar with the phrase, cometh the hour, cometh the man. And if ever there was a time when the man was needed, this, this was the moment. We know that our individuals in the Bible who at times seem to appear from nowhere and just do something uh, important with some of these individuals. We may know a lot about their subsequent uh, life. With others, we may not know anything. All that is highlighted is the one particular thing they did. Sometimes, with regard to these individuals who do this one thing and are not really mentioned again, only as far as the Gospels are concerned, only one of them, one of the Gospels, might refer to them. But this particular man, Joseph, he's actually mentioned in each of the Gospels. This particular thing that he did here uh, at the cross for Jesus, each of the Gospel writers highlighted. Matthew, Mark, and Luke only mention Joseph. But John, he tells us two details that are important. Uh, one is that on this unique activity by him, he was helped by Nicodemus, the man who's known as, who came to Jesus by night. And some people find fault with him for coming by night. But coming by night would have been a normal time for anyone to have met with someone in that very warm climate. So there, there may be nothing untoward about Nicodemus. Uh, coming to see Jesus at night. And indeed, somebody once suggested that the reason he came that particular night was because he couldn't wait until the morning. So there are lots of different ways of looking at it. 
The other thing that John tells us about uh, Joseph is that up until this particular moment, he was a secret disciple. So this was the occasion uh, when he ceased to be the uh, secret disciple. Going by the way that um, Luke describes him, it looks as if Joseph was now dead by the time that Luke wrote this account. That says there was a man. And that kind of way of describing someone could indicate that they were no longer alive. Now, it wouldn't be too surprising because perhaps 30 years have passed since Joseph did this wonderful action for the Savior. Arimathea, <clears throat> well, we might think that Joseph was the first important person to come from there, but it's generally recognized that Arimathea is the same place as Rama, and now, of course, is where Samuel grew up and so on. So, if that's the case, then two prominent people came from that location, Samuel and Joseph of Arimathea. Long time between them, of course, centuries, and but yet they both find their actions mentioned in God's word. What can we say about Joseph? Or what does Luke tell us about Joseph? Well, some points I just want to think about briefly. We're told about his character, and we're told about his career, and we're told about his concern, and we're told about his courage, and we're told about his care, and we're told about his choice. So I'd just like us to think about these particular points and then take some lessons from them. His character. What kind of man was he? Well, Luke tells us what kind of man he was there in verse 50. He was a good and righteous man. We may wonder, is there any difference between good and righteous? And um, <clears throat> I suppose it's possible to come up with some suggestions. But I suppose the reality is that you cannot be one without the other. And uh, anyone <coughs> who is be classified as righteous, they must be good. And a good person, of course, must be righteous. It's a, <coughs> it's a reference to his character as a man who is upright, who lives according to God's commandments. We sang about that kind of person in both Psalm 24 and Psalm 15. And obviously, in Psalm 24, it's in a, at the highest level, it's, and it's describing Jesus, <clears throat> but it's also describing anybody that can approach God. 
that their character um, to have access uh, to God's presence, they must have these details that are described there in both Psalm 24 and Psalm 15. Jesus, of course, had these features perfectly. But those who are uh, invited, as it were, to enter God's presence, uh, sinners, then who believe in Jesus, they all go through a life transformation. And their transformation turns them from being sinful into being good and righteous. There's, that is the outcome of sanctification. It's, it's not unusual. It's not surprising. This is the normal description of a person who is devout, who is determined to follow God. I was trying to think about what is not like. What is it not like being good and righteous? And I can't remember if I was putting my coat on or not at the time, but I just thought that a person who is good and righteous doesn't wear it like an overcoat that he suddenly takes off when he feels like it. It's something that's <clears throat> there all the time. With an overcoat, you can possibly put it on just to put on a display to others and then go somewhere else and take your coat off and not be recognized as the same person. But Nicodemus wasn't like that. He was consistent. Every day you met him, you met a good and righteous man. And that was true, whatever he was. And the action that he did at Calvary here was a good and righteous act. Just slotted in entirely with his outlook on life. Perhaps he wondered what he should do at that particular moment. But anybody looking on who knew him would have said he'll do what's good and righteous. And we can see that was the case as he looked at <clears throat> what to do regarding the body of Jesus. So that's his character. But then secondly, there's his career. And we're told about his career there in verse 50. He was a member of the council. That means he's one of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the group that made up the laws for the 
Jewish people in a religious sense, wherever they were around the world. Any issues arose, if they were important enough, supposing they were raised hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, eventually they would come up to this body for their decision regarding whatever the issue was. And he was a member of the council, and at that particular time, as we know, the Sanhedrin was run by devious and cruel people. And yet, in the middle of all that, he was a good and righteous man. Why was he a member of the council, or how was he a member of the Sanhedrin? Well, it wasn't because he was a priest or a Pharisee or a Sadducee or anything like that. All these particular groups were in the Sanhedrin. He's there because of his family connections. He's a wealthy man. He is, he's got a pedigree there in verse 50. He's stressed about him. He's from a town that was proud of its identity, its culture. He was from the Jewish town of Arimathea. There was a location where their history was valued and where the, the people tried to live as uh, the Old Testament would have guided them. And he was he wasn't really there as a representative, but he was there because of his prominence. And no doubt people were glad he was there. Because in any, organ, any um, a group of people that organize or govern anything, it's good and righteous people we want in it. And he was certainly doing that in his career. Um, we're told about him there in verse 51 that he had not consented to their decision and, and action. And that um, decision and action that's referred to in verse 51, of course, is their decision to um, condemn Jesus and take him to Pilate to get condemned to death. Luke doesn't tell us in what way he hadn't consented. Maybe he didn't consent because he wasn't there. I mean, if we were going to arrange a mock trial, we wouldn't want to invite people who are liable to spoil the decision. So it is possible that uh, priests and the others who were trying to get Jesus condemned, that they made sure that anyone who would hinder their intentions would not be there. So it is possible that when Luke is saying he hadn't consented, it means he just wasn't there. On the other hand, it could mean that he had objected. But I think if he had objected at the actual false trial, then it would have been mentioned. So maybe I suspect he wasn't actually there, 
But if he had been there, he would have acted in a good and righteous way. So that's his career. And I suppose he would have imagined on this particular Friday that his career would just carry on the way it had up until that particular day. But this day was going to change everything for him. And then there's his concern. What concerned Joseph? He's a politician. He's bound to have plenty concerns. Wouldn't we would think that, wouldn't we? But what was Joseph's concern? And his concern is mentioned there in the second half of verse 51. He was looking for the kingdom of God. And as we think about that phrase, looking for the kingdom of God, well, there's at least a couple of things we can say about it. One is that the kingdom of God wasn't there yet. Isn't it? If he's looking for it, it means that it hasn't yet appeared. And we know he was uh, aware of Jesus, and we assume that he had a grasp of what Jesus was mainly focusing on, and the subject of Jesus' teaching mainly was all about the kingdom of God. And, and that was the topic that uh, the forerunner of Jesus also highlighted, John the Baptist. He announced, he's the forerunner of the king, and he announced that the kingdom was about to come. And he had been doing this, John at least had been doing, had started doing it three years before um, this particular day and his message about the kingdom had resonated with people and they, the, no doubt the topic was a, one of which people engaged in in their conversations because whatever can be said about the message of John the Baptist and also about the message of Jesus, as they spoke about the kingdom of God, it was one that was very different from the uh, assumptions that people had made previously about God's kingdom. So Joseph knew it wasn't here yet. And probably every time he went to the Sanhedrin, he got confirmed in that decision or that opinion, I should say, when he saw all the unrighteousness around him, the good and upright man that he was, he knew the kingdom hadn't yet arrived. And maybe he was wondering what he could do to hasten the coming of the kingdom. But another thing that we can say about this description of his concern, looking for the kingdom of God, is the word looking. 
What is, I mean, it's a, it's a word picture, isn't it? Looking. It's, um, it's like saying, I think it does say somebody else about him, he was waiting for it. And of course, waiting has got a sense of anticipation. But looking has got a sense of desire, longing. Gets up every day. Maybe it's today. And he had listened to Jesus, because he must have, because he's a secret disciple. And he must have wondered, will it be today? Looking is a very powerful word. It's something that indicates that the coming of the kingdom just was the focus of everything for him. You know, there's one of the boners, apparently, every morning when he drew his curtains, as he looked out, he just said, perhaps today, Lord. Second coming, he had in mind, of course. And every evening as he closed them, he said, perhaps tonight, Lord. He was looking for the coming of the kingdom. And here's Nicodemus. He's expectant. And he's not looking for something that he doesn't know what he's looking for. He's longing for this promised kingdom, this promise in the Old Testament. He's looking for it to come. And he wants it to come as soon as possible. Because if you're looking for something, you expect it to happen imminently, don't you? So this man, good and righteous man, he was looking for a world that was full of good and righteous people. And then this day arrived and everything seemed kind of, well, what would we have said if the man we thought was going to bring in the kingdom seemed to have been defeated? But next, but Joseph, well, he had this concern, but he also had his courage. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Another of the Gospels says he went boldly and asked for the body of Jesus. Why did he do that? What made Joseph do this? Well, one obvious reason would be love. Wouldn't it? Love is the only, well, I mean the main explanation for this. Not the only explanation, but it's the main explanation. Why would this respected political leader ask for the body of a man 
who has been executed as a criminal. Why would he take this step, which as far as his earthly career is concerned, would only take him down the ladder? What moved him? The only explanation is love. Love was willing, his love made him willing to do the unexpected. Well, the unexpected as far as earth is concerned. But perhaps up in heaven, who knows? But they must have known what was going on down on earth. And there's the Son of God hanging on a tree, <coughs> mutilated. Who's going to take care of him? Well, perhaps in heaven they might have said, there will be a good and righteous man that will do it. So love moved him. And of course, <clears throat> we only ever do anything for God out of love. Things are done for any other reason. They're not acceptable. Love must be the motive. But there's also a, another reason connected to Joseph, and that is he could do it. Which is quite simple, isn't it? He could do what was needed. There was no one else at that particular moment apart from Nicodemus. There was no one else who had the authority to go into Pilate's office and ask for the body of Jesus. And maybe that was the way his mind went. I can do this. And he also had what was needed, which was right beside where Jesus was crucified, as John tells us, there was a garden. And in that garden, there was a tomb where a body could be laid. And it just so happened that the person who owned that garden was Joseph of Arimathea. So he just looked at what he could do and what he had. And both these things said, God in his providence has made it obvious I'm the man to do this. So, he did it. He did it because he could do it. I think that's a very challenging thing, isn't it? I normally think of somebody else who can do everything. doesn't matter what it is. I can point out quite easy why somebody else should do something. But as 
The best method is for anyone to ask himself or herself, can they do it? And if God has given us what's needed for the particular task, then we should never assume that somebody else should do it. God has made it possible for us to do it, whatever it is, and therefore we should do it. And if our love is strong, we will do it. It's interesting, isn't it, that Joseph must have heard about the death of Jesus. We're not told how he knew that Jesus had died. Was he at the cross all day? Or had he, was he one of these acquaintances that were standing there looking on? Or perhaps he had seen the crowds making their way along the road, weeping and lamenting. We're not told how he knew, but we're told what he did, when he knew. And that was all that was necessary. So he went to Pilate, courage. I mean, Pilate didn't think that Jesus was guilty of the charge that the Sanhedrin had dreamed up. But what would he have thought of a member of the Sanhedrin suddenly appearing on the side of this man whom the rest of the Sanhedrin had condemned? Surely something must have crossed his mind. What's going on here? But anyway, he let Joseph get the body. So we've seen his character and his career and his concern and his courage. But now there's his care. when he gets to the cross. Well, we don't know how high the cross was. I mean, the paintings you tend to see of it have it about 12 to 20 feet above the ground. But there's nothing in the Bible about how high it was. What we do know is that it was easy for a soldier to thrust a spear through Jesus' side. And that suggests that Jesus' body, or at least the cross that he was on, was only slightly above the ground. So therefore, if that was the case, it might not be that difficult to get the body down. Because some people have wondered, how could he do it? But himself and Nicodemus 
And they wonder, do they take servants along with them? And all that kind of thing. But if the cross was relatively low, then it wouldn't have been too difficult for two men to take the body down. But there are some things in the Bible that I think we should have to imagine. And I think this is one of them. How would they have taken it down? The body of the Savior. How would they have pulled the nails out of his hands and the nails out of his feet? Of course, the Savior is not alive. But his body is still precious uh, to Joseph and to Nicodemus. And we can easily imagine how gently they would have handled it. And with what dignity they would have shown. No one in heaven deserves to be there apart from Jesus. But everyone who will get to heaven will have something to be commended for. And this man and Nicodemus, they'll be commended for this. How they took Jesus down from the cross. Love shows itself in all kinds of ways. Love made Joseph go to Pilate. And love made Joseph go to the cross. And we'll think in a minute that was very costly for him. And he gets commended. And I think most of us who get to heaven, when we see Joseph, we'll commend him. Stood for Jesus at a dark time, didn't he? Him and Nicodemus, perhaps they're the only two people in the world Two men, anyway. The only two men in the world who are thinking about Jesus on the cross. The disciples, well, they've run away. The women, well, they're looking on. But Joseph and Nicodemus, they do something. So love made it happen and they stood for Jesus at this dark time and that leads us to his choice Joseph had a choice to make that day the Passover had passed but the feast of unleavened bread had just begun a week long festival connected to the celebration of their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. The moment Joseph touched the dead body of Jesus, 
he was ceremoniously unfit to take part in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. His social status and his religious reputation. As far as the people of Jerusalem were concerned, they went out the window. But it was a choice that he made. Him going to help Jesus, at least Jesus' body, meant he could never be the same again. He would always be known if he had stayed within the Sanhedrin and the Jewish religious faith, he would always be known as the man who touched the dead criminal on the first day of unleavened bread. But he made his choice. It was a choice that probably changed the rest of his life. But anyway, I'm sure he had no regrets. So what lessons can we learn from this? There's two or three. First one is the reliability of the word of God. Because as we know, this action by Joseph was predicted by Isaiah. In Isaiah 53. It doesn't mention Joseph's name, but it does mention Joseph's action. And it said that the Messiah, when he would die, he would be with a rich man in his death. And there, there's Joseph, and probably didn't even think about it. But there he was fulfilling Isaiah 53. And of course that just reminds us of the reliability of the word of God. And if it can predict what would happen with regard to Jesus hundreds of years before he died, then that should tell us that everything it predicts about the future will happen. Whether it's referring to eternal life or to eternal death. reliability of the word of God. But a second lesson we can learn from this, that God is his people in surprising places. We had asked Peter or John, any believers there in the Sanhedrin? Well, the answer they would probably get is no. Just a bunch of crooks. But there was two in the Sanhedrin, at least two, Joseph and Nicodemus. And God does have his people in surprising places, doesn't he? And I think we have to be careful when we make sweeping statements. Because we don't always know who we're including among our sweeping statements. Anyone who had dismissed the Sanhedrin has been full of ungodly men would not have been telling the truth. And God does have his people 
in very surprising places. And he may have them there, and he probably does have them there, because their moment will come. Come as the man, come as the hour. And out there, we don't know who God has in waiting. God's people in surprising places. But having said that, a third lesson is it's never good to be a secret disciple. This particular activity of Joseph could have been done by him if he hadn't been a secret disciple. He would still have been a ruler, access to Pilate, and he would still have had the tomb in his garden to give to the body of Jesus. So while it was good that he ceased to be a secret disciple on this occasion, even if he hadn't been a secret disciple, he could have done both these things straightforwardly. And it's never good to be a secret disciple. The actual description is a contradiction in terms. Because a disciple literally is somebody who follows in the footsteps of the teacher. Literally, he walked behind, he or she walked behind their teacher. Everybody could see them. So, if any of us are secret disciples, the best time to stop being one is now. A fourth lesson we can take from this is understanding the cross is the best place to bury cowardice. Spurgeon said on one occasion regarding Joseph, he said, the shameful death of the cross had greater power over Joseph than all the beauty of Christ's life. He had seen the beauty of Christ's life. But that hadn't been enough to bring him out into the open. But the cross, it's got a strange power. You know the story of Sinzendorf, the man that started the Moravian Brethren. Looking at this picture in a museum, in an art gallery once, a picture of the cross, and below it the artist had put, all this he did for me, what hast thou done for him? I suspect that a sense of Reluctance to do what's required comes from taking our eyes off the cross. All we have to do is look at what Jesus did. And that's got power. Another lesson that comes from this, of course, is that Calvary is a place where spiritual wonders occur. 
certainly happened on this particular day when Jesus was crucified. I mean, one of the criminals gets converted. The Roman soldiers get converted. And Joseph nails his colors to the mast. It was a day when spiritual wonders occur. And the extraordinary thing about Calvary is you can go there any time and spiritual wonders still occur. And it's good for us to go there because we never know what wonders are going to happen to us personally when we go there. It's not just a place of conversion. It's also a place of consecration. And if we have issues in our heart, go to Calvary. Last thing to learn from this is that what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15 about the gospel, the gospel he had declared to them that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he was raised. So it was part of Paul's gospel, wherever he went, to mention that Jesus was buried. And if Joseph hadn't done this, Well, Paul would not have been able to say it, whatever the burial meant. What did the burial mean? Well, I suppose different suggestions can be made. It confirmed his death, didn't it? Before Pilate gave the order to take the body down, he ensured that Jesus was dead. So the fact that Jesus was buried confirmed that he died. I suppose it also <coughs> uh, confirmed his own prediction because <coughs> he himself had said <coughs> even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the fish <coughs> so he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So it's part of his own prediction. But there's also another detail which is although he had died his humiliation was not yet over he had to go into the place of the dead and his body had to go into the grave and his Jesus' humiliation, where he goes down. He humbled himself to come down here. He humbled himself to go to the cross. And he allowed his body, the body of the Prince of Life, to be in a grave. Humiliation. He's gone to heaven. That is wonderful. His body's in the tomb. That is also wonderful. 
because as somebody else has said, he went there to warm it for his people. So that when they go into their grave, he understands. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks for Joseph. We know it was you that made him do what he did that day. Yet we also know that he did it. We thank you, Lord, that you are the man for the moment. And it may be the case that we will be the person for the moment somewhere. And help us, Lord, to seize the moment. This moment for Joseph would never have come again. And that may be the case for our moments as well. So Lord, help us to seize the moment and imitate Joseph and do what we can for the Savior. So remember us, Lord, we pray and bless us for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing from Psalm 119 in the Scottish Psalter, verses 57 to 60. Thou my sure portion art alone, which I did choose, O Lord. We'll stand and sing those words. Thou my sure portion art alone. I did choose, O Lord, I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word with my whole heart. I did entreat thy face and favor free. According to thy gracious word, be merciful to me. I thought upon my former ways, and in my life will try, and to thy testimonies pure. My feet then turned I, I did not stay, nor linger long, as those that slothful are, but hastily thy laws to keep myself I did. the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. <clears throat>